Hello, and welcome to this episode of TASME Time, Talks in Medical Education. I'm Katie, and I am a GP trainee in Plymouth, and I am one of the TASME podcast co-hosts. And I'm Oliver, an IMT trainee based in London, also part of the TASME team. How's your week been, Katie? Yeah, all right. Thank you, Oliver. Um, it, I'm in primary care, have seen a variety of different patients this week. It's been very interesting. But what's more interesting than that is that I'm on leave from tomorrow afternoon. So I've got a few days off and I'm off to Cornwall just to chill, eat some good food, go for a few walks and enjoy life. How about yourself? <laughs> that sounds great. I am... I've got annual leave next week, actually, which I cannot wait for. Um, although mine will mostly be spent uh, revising, unfortunately. But I'm going to make it nice. Nice coffee shops, nice bits and pieces. Love to hear it. So today we'll be talking about humanities and sociology in medical education. Today we're joined by Dr. Tracy Collette, Associate Professor in the Sociology of Health and Illness, and Dr. Sam Regan de Beer, Lecturer in Medical Humanities, who are both from the from Peninsula Medical School, University of Plymouth, to talk about humanities and sociology in medical education. So, Sam, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career to date? Okay, so um, I'm. Uh, how would I describe myself? So I'm the lead for medical humanities, as you've just said, uh, but um, I've come to it in a fairly circuitous route through um, a stint as, uh, well, my early career was as a share registrar in London in the 80s. Then I decided to go to university and study sociology, psychology and politics. Uh, And from that, uh, did a degree a master's degree in social research, and then went on to do a PhD in military sociology. Um, yeah, which was, which really kind of got me into the kind of field of advocacy and and looking at how different people's experiences are, are shaped and how their social identities were shaped by their interactions with with others and with wider society and I thought okay this is what I'm really wanting to carry on doing because I wasn't necessarily planning to go on in academia um, and so then I worked for the Department of Applied Social Science starting in around yeah the mid-90s um, and when I finished my degree worked in the social work department um, and then and then I, it, this seems like a long time ago now, so it was 20 years ago, um, John McLaughlin, who uh, is now a professor in medical education, he was um, doing a, a study, I think it was funded by Wellcome, and it was a super interesting study on, um, it was a art, a, a collaboration of scientists and artists, and he was working with the London Institute um, for Arts. Uh, with Helen Story, who was a, a fashion designer, and he was doing some amazing stuff and touring around. So, so it was a—I don't know how to describe it really, but it was a, it was a body. Um, this sounds crazy, right? So just go with it. It was a body covered in fur. It. Was it male or female? Didn't quite know. Um, kind of slightly upended, um, and then they were pumping uh, pheromones into the room. And they were looking at the kind of science of of pheromones and the impact that was having. Um, but they were they were also interested just in people's responses to the actual um, exhibit. So they so John came to me and asked me if I would work with him on that. Um, and I thought, yeah, that sounds crazy. Um, let's do it. And then it was really interesting because wherever you went, these kind of themes were coming up of how people were interacting um, with this. So, and and it was it, there was such interesting kind of cultural differences and, and and in the way that people reacted to this body, and that just got me talking to a, a whole load of people at these various different events. And um, and then John said, you know, I, I'm leading on 
the anatomy at the medical school and developing an anatomy curriculum. And we don't use cadavers uh, and we, de- we don't use dissection. They didn't use prosections either. Um, and, you know, we're re- I'm really interested in how using living and virtual anatomy might affect the way that students learn about the body and learn about, so therefore learn about patients and their relationship with mm. patients through more living um, approaches. So then, yeah, so then I started working with John and then somehow ended up as a, a lecturer at the medical school um, where I met the... Um, the medical humanities team under um, Alan Bleakley's leadership at that point, um, and um, Rob Marshall and Rhina Bromer, and just some amazing kind of interdisciplinary uh, guys who were just doing some amazing work. And Peninsula was really great for looking at mm. radical ways of, of kind of shaping curricula. And, and Alan was infusing the curricula. Um, with the kind of medical humanities and not teaching it in as separate, you know, discrete areas of study. Um, and so we, I started working there and then um, after a few years took on the lead for medical humanities um, and then started working with a clinician partner uh, because I really wanted to make it I think there's different ways, and we'll go on to it, won't we, in, in, a, in a while, but there are different ways of doing the medical humanities in the curriculum, and, and we really wanted to base it around clinical, uh, at that point, around clinical dilemmas. And um, so we started working always with kind of clinical, academic, or, or humanities practitioner partnerships, and then we widened that out to patients as well. Um, and then we just developed a huge community of practice all of whom teach at the medical school and I kind of largely manage those and develop the curriculum with all those people which is just an amazing privilege really. Um, It did uh, uh, led on um, patient and public involvement research was a director deputy director of um, the medical education research group at at Peninsula and, and developed a lot of work around patient and public involvement and that aligned really well with the kind of yeah um, patient focused and slightly different kind of qualitative epistemologically different kind of research and um and then more recently have come to doing quite a lot of advocacy with a lot of those people that that I've met through that but also with the local community and, and nationally as well so I've kind of that's my journey thank you so much um Sam and do you know what that has got to be one of the most interesting career journeys um I love this idea of working with a body covered in fur pumping out pheromones who would have thought that was going to be your in into medical education we like that is fascinating and another point that you touched on um the fact that Peninsula was quite radical in its development of humanities and sociology within the curriculum. I, for full transparency for our listeners, I'm a Peninsula graduate and that was definitely palpable throughout my undergraduate training as, and has shaped me um, as a postgraduate trainee and into the person I am today and can definitely advocate for that sort of curriculum, which I'm sure will become more apparent throughout the rest of the episode. Um, Tracy, now on to you. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and um, well, your journey? Yeah, um, it wasn't quite bodies and pheromones, but um, well, I, I started kind of my career in teaching, actually. Um, excuse me. <coughs> Second, third COVID, around COVID, remaining cough. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, I started off in, in teaching. Um, so I did a teaching degree. Um, uh, which was an accident, but that was that's probably not for this. And I did linguistics and um, as part of that and drama. Uh, and then after kind of four years of that, I came out um, taught in sort of secondary and primary education in special needs. Um, and then after that, I did a part-time master's in social research um, uh, because it wasn't really that fulfilled being a teacher um although I enjoyed it and um 
I so yeah, I did a master's in in social research at Plymouth. Um, whilst I was teaching, I did it part time, um, and I was really interested in chronic illness. Um, and in particular, at the time, it was ME, chronic fatigue syndrome. And so I was kind of interested in, I, I had a number of, um, there were a number of people around me that were, were really ill with this mysterious condition that nobody seemed to believe um, and that they couldn't really sort of seek help. Uh, so they're in this weird position of being really physically ill uh, and yet having to carry on as normal as best as they could because there wasn't any help. Uh, so my my dissertation for my uh, master's and then um, uh, and then I got an ESRC funded PhD was all about that so looking interviewing people so I kind of developed a real interest into in um, uh, in sociology sociology of health and illness um, and in particular looking at chronic illness and uh, people's experiences of that um, and so themes from that were really around kind of embodiment uh power doctor patient relationships identity and all of that you know those things that sam was sam was saying about interactions um you know how how uh interactions with the world shape how we experience the world um and also how we as individuals have kind of agency to respond to that in, in with whatever resources that are available to us so um you know following all, all of that work I spent a couple of years as a research fellow and then actually this was just after Sam had been employed by John McLaughlin um I also I then John had got some more money to study um so this particular project was how anatomy uh, in in the medical school and how um ideas about the body are shaped with um uh, on the base you know on the basis of the kinds of resources that students use. So um, so in the anatomy um, teaching rooms at the time they had, and they still have, was your, as you know, um, sort of plastic bodies that you take apart um, to learn about the structure and the function of, um, of the human body. Um, and at the time they are, they are all kind of perfect bodies um, and they're kind of a particular kind of size and they're, they're all white um and and you know there's no obese bodies or um even overweight bodies and so on and so, so there's a particular way of looking so we engage students on art projects you know on living in that uh, life anatomy drawing um you know sorry uh live sorry my brain at this time of night on drawing art on art what do you call it Life drawing. Life drawing, yeah. Take oh, it. Don't don't life drawing. Thank God. <laughs> and yeah, life drawing, that's the one. And so we've got groups of students doing that. We've got groups of students on poetry workshops. Um, and we've got groups of students doing art, uh, drama. And then we sort of spoke to them about kind of how, how does engagement with the body in those particular ways impact on their understanding of the body. And so that was just a really interesting um, project to be involved in. Um, and it drew on my sociology and so after that um, and various other sort of bits involved at the medical school I they were advertising for a sociology teacher uh, and I got that post and so I've been at the medical school as the lead for sociology of health and illness for 17 years Um, and I love it I've been you know I mean the 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 day job is um, not as I imagined it to be I didn't imagine ever that I would be really kind of challenged by the idea of integrating a subject into medical education in the way that I have been I thought it would all be about running a module and getting students interested um and and so kind of my whole life (laughs) my life's work within within medical uh, education has really about been about teasing out how you can effectively integrate sociology with all of the other wonderful stuff that's going on in a way that students um perceive it to be relevant um and meaningful and and um and and of value to them so yeah that's where i that's what i do and i would say as yeah as a graduate of peninsula you've definitely achieved that i think um if you know that's one thing that most of us agree on is that those core um like concepts and disciplines um, were interweaved from day one across all different areas of the curriculum, assessment, 
um, to some people's <laughs> disagreement and disappointment. Yeah. But in, normally in the latter years, they really um, began to understood the need and rationale. So, yeah, thank you for your good work. And I don't think um, I don't think I knew how fortunate I was until after I'd graduated and began to attend sort of educational conferences and work with trainees from different universities um how special and how radical actually that still is today I think um both of you have mentioned such um interesting routes into your careers and your the jobs you're doing now um as someone who's from outside of the um peninsula um <laughs> curriculum and bubble. from experience yeah the the bubble <laughs> that we've got on this podcast um why is um, sociology or medical humanities so important within an undergraduate education curriculum? No, that I mean that's that's kind of the the key question, I guess, isn't it? That, that we're asked all the time, and 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 I think it's that it offers. You know, it's often portrayed as an alternative or, or mm. the kind of polar opposite to mm-hmm. scientific approaches or even clinical approaches, which is weird uh, but um <laughs> and I think you know it, it in terms of it's kind of the epistemological differences yes there are epistemological differences there are different worldviews that there are different there are differences in how the kind of knowledge is formed and shaped and contested and and those kinds of things and and I but I think actually the kind of approach that that we can borrow, if you like, from some of those arts and humanities disciplines really fit with the worlds that that doctors have to work in, with the kind of complex, messy, you know, increasingly challenging worlds that doctors that 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 doctors will be working in. And I, and and I think it's important because that kind of those epistemological differences, those those kind of ways of of thinking about processes differently about kind of embracing complexity rather than trying to close it down or come up with definitive answers to things I think that leads to approaches to being able to develop approaches that that are kind of really open that are curious um, that are questioning that lead to kind of creativity and adaptability to those kinds of situations and and that that kind of thing really helps kind of reflective or reflexive practice um and d- just takes some of the fear if you like some of the anxiety out of that out of that complexity and out of uncertainty you know particularly i think both um i mean tracy will talk about sociology but but i think that 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 both of our subject areas are really focused on helping students to deal with that uncertainty and and a lot of those different disciplines just have a, a, a lot of um ways of um thinking about and being responsive to the challenges you know not not instead of scientific knowledge but when you have that scientific knowledge and you're in a difficult situation how do you then apply that how do you deal with the the unfamiliar how do you um how do you work with you know how do you articulate and 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 interpret and and navigate those systems that you're working in how do you you know we both do a lot of uh, work on on narratives and and I, I guess I guess the whole thing is about equipping students um with the frames of thinking with the um confidence of not being overwhelmed by by complexity and by not being able to necessarily come down decisively in, in one answer or another that has massive implications for assessment, which I know we're going to talk about later, um, and and being able to negotiate complex ideas, scenarios, and to develop those kind of capabilities for dealing with ambiguity in that way, and and really being able to use that to develop compassionate kind of care uh, for for self for, for for themselves and and also for others. That's interesting because I think the 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 particularly early years medical education at an undergraduate level can be tried to, specifically the the 
the clinical sciences or the clinical aspect can be almost taught as black and white at, at, at a simple level but actually as soon as you reach those higher levels of, of medical school or in your first day and then the rest of your career we're always practicing in the gray nothing nothing is black and white um and i think what you've said about sort of the humanities aspect of being able to deal with that and understand the 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 structures in which we work just sound it's obvious why it's important yeah i i totally agree and i think that some of those you know core concepts taught from an early stage in terms of managing ambiguity managing uncertainty are so integral to working in healthcare and especially as a you know decision-making clinician uh, it's it's so important and yeah we don't work in binaries <laughs> at all like Oliver has said it's definitely definitely as I progress through my training especially because I'm a GP trainee those areas have served me so well and I feel like I'm continuing to develop on those skills um, now and managing people and their issues rather than diagnosis finding is a huge shift in my thinking and I think that only served me very well in the early years and it's made it easier for me now definitely although it's not easy it's never easy but easier (laughs) I think that kind of notion of it's it's Mm. okay not to know um which is so kind of it is it's just um it's empowering it's reassuring um and it's it's completely kind of antithetical to actually what young people entering medical education are taught to expect in terms of what what's important you know that for, for, for them for many of them it's really important that they absolutely have to know they have to know that's how they get by and actually to kind of um you dislodge those kind of sort of rooted kind of beliefs um, through humanities kind of techniques and, and training, you know, the, the whole idea of ambiguity and uncertainty, like like you guys are saying, it's just, um, you know, who who just thought that that was important, you know, in a kind of conventional, um, in, in higher education, in, in a scientific medical subject, um, you know, as 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 is kind of popularly kind of suggested it just isn't a science is it and like we're, we're we know that and we're taught that but there mm. is this notion sort of across the board that the education of medicine should be quite scientific that's sort of an accepted sort of um thought maybe not across like sort of medical education spheres but definitely amongst sort of the medical student and doctor population it tends to be more of the way of thinking can can i say from a sociology what what, what you know why yes, sociology please. matters as well uh, um because i think like you know that those the processes that the humanities kinds of sh- sort of shines on they're just so key theoretically to kind of medical education and and the stock answer from a, from why why sociology is important for medical students that I always give is really sort of um, like qu- quite simplistic on the face of it, but it is this, the uh, students need to think in terms of the bi- a biopsychosocial model that like health and illness, doing medicine, our lives are sort of socially kind of, it, we, we don't operate <laughs> in a silo. It's a, you know, everything is socially, socially contingent. And so just to... Um, right from the word go um to, to make them really kind of internalize that idea that of the the bio, biopsychosocial model that you know they need to be thinking yes about genetics yes about microbiology yes about kind of anatomy and structure and function and then kind of moving out about the psycho you know it's also about the you know the health beliefs for example the psychology that an individual or um whether they're a worker or a patient or whatever brings to, brings to the table and then about their kind of social circumstances you know family class gender you know race ethnicity all of those things they really have a bearing mm. on medical outcomes that are actually really tangible uh, and then again moving out kind of into more population health um you know mm. almost kind of planetary uh, 
perspective, ecological perspective. And so kind of starting starting students off with that kind of mindset that they are going to need to think within a much broader framework than traditional biomedicine um, is really, really key um, to this process as well. And then, you know, as they kind of transition through the curriculum, thinking, you know, turning that quite rudimentary idea of a biopsychosocial model uh into um into more kind of um into more kind of complicated ideas around kind of complexity um and so kind of removing away that removing that framework from their thinking and letting them go with complexity is something that you know so why is Mm -hmm. it important because um you know we know that health and illness outcomes aren't just mediated by clinical um by by biomedical interventions thank you so so much it's um it's a joy to listen to you both talking about these disciplines and obviously you know combined sort of 37 years of working at the university of plymouth you've got such a wealth to draw on um and you know that passion and enthusiasm still shines through which is really important um Talking of which, talking of all those years, I'm sure you've got loads and loads of examples and you've already given us some great examples of how you've integrated the humanities and sociology into your curriculum. Um, But for our listeners, um, it's really good talking about the theory and um, sort of the process, but quite often um, people like to hear about real tangible examples of what's gone on. So would you be happy to share a handful of... um, examples that you have um, been involved with with in in your curriculum and either and also maybe further afield as well if 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 you would if you would make if you could um Sam do you, do you want to talk first yeah sure um well I love talking about the stuff that we do that's that's the reality of you know that's that's where you see the uh, the fruits of it so that's that's a great thing to kind of reflect on I always find it quite rewarding the, I suppose. Um, so the way it's probably best to talk about how we run our curriculum because then you might kind of be able to think about how we structure it across the curriculum so um we we have a spiral curriculum so we build um at relevant points our um our humanities uh teaching and learning through the curriculum um and we kind of introduce uh issues uh that the humanities can help us to kind of understand some more of the slightly knowledge but i i don't think it's a pre-clinical clinical thing but it's certainly more the kind of knowledge bases and some some helpful ways of thinking so those kind of knowledge frameworks so for example narrative medicine um, we talk about kind of narrative um about the way that we use narrative to make sense of ourselves right at the beginning and, and so we look at their transition from um you know to to, to a student from from a, a um, school student to a university student to a, a kind of medical identity and then we move up to thinking about how um narratives can be developed but then how narratives can be disrupted as well so for example I'm leading to the fact that today we did some sessions on um, loss and grief and we worked with various different patients in the room um, who all brought different ways of expressing and articulating and sharing their various different types of loss with the students so some people used kind of artwork some used poems um some told stories um and and they and they used that to work through the kind of uniqueness of different types of loss whether it's loss of health loss of identity loss of certainty um loss of um kind of order uh loss of people obviously and relationships and and they and so they they used a kind of narrative approach to that session with a lot of different arts and humanities kind of formats within that and that 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 just makes it really engaging and it's a great leveler as well um so and then we move on um through the years to actually my my kind of if if you like is this kind of my favorite thing which is the kind of transformative learning um where we we bring students 
out into the community um, and they work with different uh, community populations to develop advocacy. And one of the things that I love about this one is this, this is the pedagogy is very much developed around um, developing approaches to dealing with uncertainty and about, you know, understanding yourself in that situation and understanding where that, how that feels and that that's okay. So it's coming back to that kind of discussion that we had before. Um, and then going through, Tracy and I were talking about it earlier, about these kind of transitions that you go through where you start to develop skills, start to develop a, a ways of adapting. And, and you do that with a, a massive group of really amazing people in the community taking you through that with you and you're all learning from each other. So that is um, creative approaches to advocacy for well-being. And, and that is a particularly just a, a great way of, of bringing humanities as a kind of vehicle. But actually what students are doing is, is, is kind of u- using that to learn about themselves, about a whole bunch of other people, about the world that people really live in. Um, and about how you can work with other people to get through that that kind of those challenges. Um, so they all take completely different approaches. They have different uh, medical humanities facilitators um, working with an advocate out in the community with a particular community group. Um, and they all identify what those needs for that group might be for improving well-being. So it's a, it's a kind of a very salutogenic approach to improving well-being by tackling inequalities by looking at environments and improving those and then and then working with those communities to come up with really meaningful projects and and they've made loads of impacts it's just incredible I mean you give us some examples oh god yeah okay so um so one today um they're they've come up with a game actually so they've they've come up with a game for um, people with learning disabilities who have their annual um, health checks and to, uh, this, this game kind of acts as a, I guess, a leveler between them and the, a, a, for, for communication between them and their doctors so that they can understand what each other wants out of that um, interaction. Cool. Um, and so it's cool. kind of based on snakes and ladders, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, it's these things that are really, they're simple kind of ideas, but they're really impactful. And, and what it, What's interesting about it is the students go in initially, as we all do, with ideas of what might be helpful. Mm. And then, you know, you, you fall down, <laughs> you fall down, you literally fall down the, um, the snake. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, your your community kind of says, yeah, it's nice. But actually, what really want want is this. So they learn, they learn, um, well, they tell us, you know, they learn and we see it in their assessments as well, that they learn those kind of that compassionate kind of communication, really listening, really empathising and, and then coming up with something together at the end of it. We've got other, uh, um, we have sailing, uh, we have sailing with uh, recovering addicts where they share their stories and they have to work together as a team. So again, great leveller working out what your what your uh, strengths and weaknesses are. We have um, we have one. Oh, oh my, we have just so many. <laughs> There's just we've got twenty four projects. I think. Wow. Completely. Just one more example. I'm loving hearing the examples. I know oh, that. Yeah, most, how do I choose the most? How do I choose the most? And what we have, we have disabilities. We got the sailing addictions. We have um, stuff on menopause and how to um, raise awareness about people's experiences of the menopause and how environments and working workplaces can be, um, you know, have, have real impacts on people's, how people can deal with something that is it an illness or is it natural, but, it, you know, what what is it and how can we all work together to help people deal with it? We have um, hospice, care, palliative care. We have um, a, a project with Bosom Pals, which is a, um, a breast cancer uh, support group um we there's there's just the, <laughs> so many animals yeah yeah yes yeah. so, so many of those and 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 I think you know that whole transformative experience you know what 
what I love about it is what the students say at the end. So at the beginning, it's as a medical educator, actually, if you're going to take on these kinds of things, it can be quite, you know, you're out of your comfort zone as well. It's not measurable. You have faith that it's going to work, right? But the students are all panicking. <laughs> your facilitators are saying the students are all panicking and you're having to kind of, yeah, yeah, that's kind of meant to be. Um, and there's some really nice stuff out there at the moment about kind of uncertainty tolerance and how what helps so there's some some fairly kind of useful instrumental stuff that you can actually look at but um to to help you get through those but it's just the most rewarding thing as an educator to do and when you were talking there's just a, there's a couple of really nice books out there that that kind of I think reflect some of the stuff you do Sam one of them is called um the beautiful risk of education by a guy called Biesta that sort of talks about kind of educational spaces have lost their riskiness and you know and it's a real call for bringing that in and there's another one called the courage to teach as well which is again that thing about like will students like it or won't students like it but um Sam Sam the humanities influence it doesn't just it's not just confined to particular humanity sessions of course it goes all over so um you know like things like um historically across the curriculum you know we've used um uh, pl- uh people who um people who are actors um and people who are you know poets and artists so we have kind of living anatomy models um who who kind of du- du- double up you know in, in anatomy do anatomy we have um you know in in our problem-based learning most of our facilitators are um um, yeah, good. Most of our facilitators, you know, we're very used to kind of getting if the students are willing, getting students to role play and do stop start, you know, okay, let's put yourself in the patient's position, you be the doctor, right, time out, you know, how could you have done that better? Um, do you want a couple yes. of examples? I've just written down, written down yes, my, my, my practice. <laughs> like, I want to get in there. Um, so, number one, um, a lot of work with a pa- lot of work with patients um lots of doubling doubling up with patients and pe- pe- mem- members of the public so um i have a um a colleague um kevin french who has um arthroid cerebral palsy um and he's got inaudible speech um and he has no movements in his hands uh, and he is mobile with an armchair um and actually he comes in he takes a whole 2 hour workshop on disability and that's really hugely transformative because we're just exposed you know yeah. ch- that just changes people so in terms of humanizing medicine it's really really powerful and and we use that kind of particular method um uh, there's this idea um spiral curriculum uh, blooms taxonomy hit students in the effective domain <laughs> um yeah so with um when we're talking about kind of gendered violence we don't have much curriculum space and so you know we, we do it ethically and safely but we have um you know someone co- talk about their experience of domestic abuse and we have a couple of people come in and talk and again you know those kinds of sittings um those sort of uh, uh sessions the students don't forget them they remember them and then and then we can build on them by kind of then going on to talk in the next year getting the same speaker coming back to talk about trauma and how trauma is related to kind of adverse kind of childhood effects and linking it into childhood things that happen in childhood and linking that in so you know we we get students our students teach on some of the lgbtq stuff you know we say well you know you 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 come on give us your you know you're you're younger than us talk talk about your experiences you know we set it all up and and so on but um you know that those kinds of um sessions really um they really humanize medicine I think and get students kind of feeling like um it's important to talk about stuff um thinking outside of their own particular kind of comfort zones um linking their prior experiences or their knowledge of the outside world to those particular kind of learning situations and recognizing their their importance so is, is that enough examples i think we've got some excellent examples <laughs> so much <laughs> maybe um, you should time check for a little time <laughs> no i don't want to limit any conversations um shall we shall we move on to um something a little bit more um so we've talked a lot about undergraduate curricula and there's a wealth of you know really great work and examples that you've given us 
but obviously we are from the trainees in the association for the study of medical education and I know neither of you work necessarily within that postgraduate sphere but the majority of our listeners are you know junior doctors who are involved in medical education and we would really love to hear from two experts on how those people could try to integrate the humanities and sociology into their own work, bearing in mind that these people may not have dedicated educational time. They might be junior doctors on the ward. They might have a small amount of time with students um, as sort of um, sort of sort of clinical teachers with maybe a role within the university that's quite limited. They may have more time with students, but how do they how would they go about integrating it into their work? I would, one thing I would say is whether you're a, a doctor or a, an educator in postgraduate, um, it, but for anybody who's practicing, I, I just, um, reflection, reflection, reflection. I think, you know, that whole, the process of um, noticing, n- noticing the world around you and noticing when you feel, keeping you know keep where's mine I've got you know keeping that kind of like hardback diary and just just or or, or notes on your phone and just noting when you you have those kind of eureka moments or those really weird cringe moments or when something's funny and then using those almost like you would in a problem-based learning you know interrogating what happened there was it me was it the social situation is it the psychology is it them you know what do I know about this because I think too often particularly in a public facing fast moving job there's a tendency to not not reflect or maybe there's not enough time but just to not be in that habit and to maybe then blame oneself for things that have happened and 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 for not actually being kind to kind to oneself or for learning from experiences I I think you know if I could offer anybody anything just um the, the the gift of reflection as a as a way of thinking critically about life as it happens on a on a daily basis so yeah what about you Sam yeah I totally agree with Tracy on that and and actually you know we talk about that kind of postgraduate learning and Tracy and I learn a lot from each other because we have constant debriefs after any kind of major major teaching experiment we've, we've implemented um, you know for the, for the good and the bad because I think you you can you you can kind of think that it's all got to be absolutely perfect but but actually some of the things that are that are challenging um, are just that's where the big learning happens and you know I think often we think we need to set up complex courses but we are really our own resource and from an academic kind of perspective from a from a sociologist you know I I learn so much from conversations with clinicians and with patients and with mm. sector workers and with you know everyone that we work with and and I I just think you know that kind of thing doesn't take an awful lot of money and and really it doesn't take an awful lot of time either um often you end up spending time because it's just so rewarding but I would say that particularly obviously advocacy is my thing but but I think that people can Clinicians get involved in all kinds of advocacy, not just for their kind of patients in front of them, but in interests that they have. You know, like you've already talked about your kind of interest in um, sexual health, and 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 Katie, I know that you've done um, work on um, like economically deprived communities before as well, and that kind of thing. I think if you can come together with mm. people. Um, I was going to say with your students, but you're kind of all students in that. It's a great leveler. You're all students in that kind of situation. I think everyone benefits. Everyone learns from that. So I don't know whether you really need a formal kind of classroom space and time put aside. I, I think it's if you feel it and if you care about it and you've got each other interested in it, there's so much to learn yeah. from each other that, you know, that, that's a different to a kind of formal thing, but you can formalise that. A lot of the stuff that we've done has been where we've, you know, we're really open to that. We're And I, I think, again, that's one of the benefits of the humanities and the social sciences and shape, they're called, aren't they? I think they're mm. called now, uh, <laughs> subjects, you know, is, is that you can 
grow stuff organically you know you can have that conversation and go yeah let's 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 do that um and then and then look at what works and then it's all about as Tracy said it's kind of learning by doing and then really reflecting very critically and and very um kind of compassionately for yourself on that as well about the bits that Mm. don't work as well as the bits that do Mm -hmm. And, and and again, if you if you find if you have colleagues that you know dotted about that are interested in medical humanities, social sciences, politics, you know whatever, you know, f- find them because quite often, you know, like I think you know when you're involved in when you when you've got something good going on in your life, you feel like you know pretty chuffed, you know, you, you just you've got a kind of bit of a spring in your step, you know, like a good I think good projects they may be challenging, but you always know that they're good because they've got life. And so, you know, if you're, when you're with a colleague where you, you can kind of, you know, you, you, you're kind of, you've got a, a bit of a buzz going between you and, you know, that's really good and it's, and, and don't ignore that. And, and, you know, you can grow in capacity as kind of networks. We've done that with sociology and medical humanities. We've, we've, we've had to, we've, we've, we've actually had to grow organic communities of practice out of Peninsula and, you know, with other people that are doing the same thing in other places. Um, and actually it's been really effective. We've got a really strong network now, which is engaging critically um, and academically, not as a pressure group, but certainly as a kind of an academic, you know, academic network um, that's really making a difference. We've, you know, we've kind of influenced GMC decision-making and, and, you know, stuff like that. So believe in what you do if you're interested in it look it up I would just add like I think some of the areas like for postgraduate trainees as well like or um, anybody involved in education especially those who are clinical I think sometimes clinicians have a tendency to teach on clinical topics to students and um, and fellow trainees that are you know very much the basic sciences and you know differential diagnoses investigations management plan that's where you sort of gravitate towards but actually I really always I didn't tend to enjoy that so much I really liked talking about you know I really loved working with students on their communication skills consultation skills Um, and actually if you enjoy those areas then make sure you bring that knowledge of humanities and sociology to it and bring that as much as you can like the art of storytelling to case presentation because all clinicians will be involved in educating students on feeding back or giving a case presentation at some point in their time and actually storytelling and acting and um facial like facial expressions and body language and those are all you know areas of what maybe what could be classed as humanities or some of the sociological interactions and that is you know actually we're all involved in that and you can bring so much by drawing on those areas rather than just actually you didn't mention this differential diagnosis because they they'll get told that time and time again by lots of different people and it's really like there is a lot that you can do as just to do I'm doing um sort of uh what's that like air quotes <laughs> air quotes there's <laughs> lots more that you can do um than teach the science that I would say like that's really other, interesting other fellow fellow junior educators or um like clinicians involved in education yeah and um, Katie I think that um one thing that, that would be good for people to hear is that I, I think people who are already working in those fields are, are just so keen to hear from other people who are interested so you know we we get emails and you know co- communications from um, various trainees and pe- people who just come in and say look I'm really interested in doing this but I don't think I don't know what I've got to offer and and we're like oh fantastic <laughs> and there they are suddenly with like <laughs> trying to work out their hours because they're, they're, they're you know we're trying to get them into to work with us so it's I, I think that that it's really worth seeking out people who are already doing this kind of stuff mm-hmm. and also I think Tracy's kind of hinted at this there are really great um informal networks but also really formal ones like the association of medical humanities i think it's association of medical and health humanities now and the the groups that tracy works with like best and they 
they are amazing. And if you go to their conferences, you will just get a flavor of like how that inclusivity that you were talking about, anything that is kind of sits outside of what you might think to do, that exists out there. <laughs> and it's really worth going and having just just dipping a toe in and seeing whether that's for you because I think for well certainly a lot of people come to us and say it is for them and then they they become our colleagues and part of our kind of community of practice how however much or how little they can kind of do with us it's it's all part of that kind of that academic community of practice that clinical community of practice it's really just a lovely thing to get involved in and that's probably the first way forward I would think. I'd really like to see. Um, uh, sorry, I know with time, time and all that, but um, I'd really like to see a, um, a a masters in medical humanities and a masters in sociology. And and um, I know this isn't quite responding to the question, but it used to be the case, certainly with sociology, that um, uh, in the eighties and nineties they had um, you know people could second or intercalate to um, social research. And, and you know medics and then go back in and take that back and draw that draw on that in their practice and you know there's research showing how powerful that that was you know where medics have actually talked about goodness that was just you know it's really transformed how I've op, op, you know I was gonna say operated if you'll pardon the pun <laughs> um, um, and, and but those have all disappeared and now the kind of I feel I think that the kind of the academic offer for postgraduates um it is 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 much more limited in what you can do it all seems to be clinical education clinical education and I just want, would like to see it broaden out again I think that'd be really really good that's interesting mm. yeah I think there are those who are um who are super interested in the field and it, they I think you can as you you watch your fellow junior clinicians develop you see those who are really interested in the um in the in the person and the sociology of that individual and the community in which they work and there are others who are um much more um focused on the science side and obviously we need we all need to have be able to do the minimum of both and yeah. I think there are there are those that um that that have strengths in different fields and that make that's what makes medicine interesting and makes us a good team and everything i think as a as a junior going through the ranks though the 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 academic um well they're both academic disciplines but the the clinical sciences and the um and education leadership those kind of things are much more incentivized on job applications as we progress that kind of thing whereas actually um it's very well that you can assess it and it is a part of our of our job but this element is often neglected and especially once you've crossed that threshold of you are qualified now you are good enough to be a doctor I think it's often it's incorporated within curriculums but it's not it's not to the fore for example I've got a whole day training day tomorrow for IMT and it's lit, it's clinical 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 all day and nothing on like developing our communication skills developing our um uh, or or advancing our skills and those are all things you have to seek out in addition to the sort of the minimum it's, it's really, really interesting, interesting. <laughs> sorry it's really interesting at the same time i was just going to argue that like that actually in gp training where i am here in Plymouth I think it's been massively influenced by the undergraduate curriculum and there's lots mm. of clinicians that have graduated from that curriculum and also that work with the university mm. and actually they're very very like good at we do a lot on um communication skills and taking it to the next level I thought I was okay at comm skills I thought <laughs> I, I thought I was done no and that it really gets harder and harder and there's some really good stuff and we have lots of patients coming in and talking about their stories and actually the clinical sessions are far and few between so that there, there is different things going on elsewhere but I think some mm. specialties are you know they're not as radical or as progressive as others I guess I think it's notorious in GP training that you know it's it's like historically and 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 it's just and 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 yet not in hospital hospital mm. training that it and I, and I think it um yeah it's 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 time for a change absolutely 
it's interesting if you look at the patient um, viewpoint on this because you know a lot of the there's been huge amounts of kind of a, a huge increase in patient complaints right which okay you can maybe say is is about the kind of consumer approach but actually I, I did a, I did some work for the GMC and and we were able to go and look at their um, complaints system so it's about the fitness to practicing and almost all of the complaints were not about bad clinical kind of decision making mm. or like somebody not knowing their science or um you know it, it was about the way that people were made to feel and that always came down to communication and actually you know every time you'd think oh god if somebody had just sat down with them um and 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 stopped that kind of spiral of of despair that they were having because of lack of communication that was probably quite unintentional in many cases but 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 just that that lack of human interaction when people are in a really stressful place and often in unfamiliar kind of healthcare settings and it it is interesting that it's still not something that is done really right across the board because you know you might you might think you might not want to have to have all that and 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 also you know you talk to clinicians and they prefer it when they have a positive um experience a positive interactions with people so you you'd kind of think it would be more uh across the curriculum to have both the process and the kind of knowledge that helps you to communicate kind of empathically and to you know we do a lot on on um kind of intelligent kindness so you know that it's not an it's not an unintelligent thing to do to be kind and to show compassion you can mm. do it within, you know you, you can that's what I was going to get out yeah and 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 so so I think you know hopefully I think we'll see that more it has changed massively since the our medical school opened and we were quite radical and I'm I'm say some of the stuff radical is not radical now it's but it's still it's mm. taking time to get through the the system yeah i think we could we could talk about this for hours yeah. i think we, well <laughs> i'm relatively new to the uh um well let's say you're preaching to the converted on <laughs> as, as a, a new member to this little bubble um, <laughs> and uh i think we could talk about it for hours i've learned a huge amount um from listening to your experiences and your um it, that you've shared with us today in this episode it's been really interesting um so thank you very much thank you so much would would you both be able to share one take home message about medical humanities and or sociology in medical education for our listeners please one take home message for sociology for in medical education if the, it's huge, it's it's just it's just critically important. Don't be fooled because it's got an ology. There's nothing soft. There's nothing fluffy about it. It's the most critical academic discipline that you can imagine. There's loads of introductory books out there that are really good reads that you all I can guarantee you will find um, really interesting. So yeah, it's not soft. It's not fluffy. It's hard as nails. It changes <laughs> lives. Love it. Okay, I'm, I'm for the humanities one. I think I'm going to use a, a quote from a student that I just really remember from years ago who did medical humanities um, in his year four. I don't know why this sticks in my mind, but he said, you know, he felt ground down by the pressures of the um, of medical training and the prospects of the machinery of the NHS. And he said that the medical humanities... Um, really helped to um, bring back his emotional antennae and I think that it's all about keeping the human keeping the human approach to things and being and being open to different ways of thinking about the human condition and and your your role as a doctor in caring for that and I, and, and I think that would be the main thing and you know experiment with the humanities um and and sociology and i'm pretty sure that will help thank you what a perfect end to the podcast thank you so much
Thank, Thank you. you. That was such a great discussion. Um, I found it absolutely fascinating, their enthusiasm, expertise and love and knowledge for both humanities and sociology and how they cannot be sort of cookie cuttered out and just inserted into medical education, but actually how they're so integral to undergraduate and postgraduate medical education throughout different curricula because they are so important for health and illness um, learning essentially I was really taken away by everything they had to share yeah I thought it was such an interesting um, hearing about their experiences and also their careers into their roles now but equally I think that discussion about uncertainty and that I think as clinicians, we both know that our populations, our patients are getting more complex, both medically, both pers- uh, the societies in which we are practicing and that kind of thing. And that um, that medical humanities is provi- and sociology is providing that understanding mm. and that framework for working within that uncertainty in those grey areas. Um, really fascinating. So... Once again, thanks to our fabulous guests, Dr. Tracy Collette and Dr. Sam Regan DeBeer, um, for their insights and their sharing their knowledge. So you can find out more about TASME, ASME, and our many other groups at asme.org.uk. And make sure to give us a follow on Twitter at TASME underscore UK. Thank you to the entire podcast team and the wider TASME committee, as well as Emlunya for our theme music. Thank you for listening to Tasmi Time and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Mm-hmm.